Welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow. Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. on KOPN 89.5 FM and KOPN.org. And it's where the birds and the bees and the donkeys and the fiddles all come together. I'm your host, Margot McMillan, and we're all glad that you're here, too. Thanks for listening. And the podcast you are about to hear is an interview with Craig Watts regarding the dangers for a farmer that signs up with a giant corporation to have one of their buildings built on his land. It was broadcast on February 16th, 2022. If you're interested more in uh, hearing about concentrated animal feeding operations, we do have other podcasts that are up that you can listen to, and I will direct your attention particularly to an interview with Dr. Robert Lawrence on the health risks of concentrated animal feeding operations. That's podcast E18 and E19, which is the, uh, an interview with Dr. Elliot Murphy on health risks of concentrated animal feeding operations, especially health risks to neighbors this interview with Craig Watts talks more about the financial difficulties that farmers can find themselves in after they sign up with a giant corporation for a corporation to build a giant building on their land and then send them animals to raise. Turns out the corporation's holding all the cards. Here goes. I caught up with Craig in his North Carolina home on Zoom. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Where are you? I'm in southeastern North Carolina. I'm right on, if you look where Interstate 95 runs down the East Coast, uh-huh. where North Carolina meets South Carolina, I'm basically right there. Ah, great. Well, I'm really, really pleased to have you on Farm and Fiddle and to be able to hear your story, I think. Um, you know, we've talked a lot on our radio show about the environmental situation with CAFOs and with the, you know, that's the major thing we've hit on. And with the, the human cost of taking markets away from farmers, but we haven't talked to anyone who has been in the system and understands it from the inside and, um, and knows, you know, what's going on with the farmers themselves who are taken into that system. So I, I'm really appreciative of you being able to come forward with that, that story. No problem. Well, um, so tell us, uh, so maybe, maybe we should start with what your background is. Have you been a farmer for all your life, raised on a farm, that kind of thing, or? Yeah, I, I was raised on a farm, um, you know, pretty I'm 50, I'll be 56 in April and pretty much except for a couple of years, I've stayed right there on that family farm. 
Oh. In North Carolina. So yeah, I've, I've got strong agricultural roots. You bet. So what's the name of this of the community? The name of the community is Fairmont, North Fairmont. Carolina. And it was world renowned for uh, tobacco markets back in earlier days. Of course, tobacco faded in the last 30 years, but it used to be like big time. I get it. So when the tobacco market started failing, is that when people started going to uh, concentrated animal feeding operations? Kinda, um, maybe the maybe the CAFO industry. Well, in our county, it, we it was later. It was mm -hmm. like in the '90s before the CAFO industry ever really came in. There was maybe a few, but like west of us, it had you know uh, Tyson at that time was Holly Farms, mm -hmm. and they had been there probably since the '60s or '70s. But uh, in our area, uh, the early '90s was was when they came in, and you know and that was kind of one of the things that was kind of sold as is you know we know tobacco. There's no future in it. This is going to take its place, but um, farmers made money raising tobacco and I'm not promoting tobacco. I'm just, they just did, right. and, uh, but, uh, not so much with the, the least poultry. I, you know, that's, that's, you know, the, the, the uh, system I came through. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, so when the tobacco industry went, went down, what did people mostly go to like in the fifties and sixties? Uh, well, the tobacco industry was actually pretty strong. I think oh. it was, actually during the clinton administration um there was a lot of pushback on it and they had this hearing in congress and all the executives from the tobacco companies stood up and said no nicotine is not addictive tobacco is not harmful they called it the seven dwarves that meeting and uh that was kind of the kiss of death if they'd have just got up and been honest it might have been a whole different story but that they, they, they never recovered from that and people got wised up and quit smoking i mean they, that kind of started tailing off you know in the 70s probably but really now it's uh, probably as much export market as anything. Huh, interesting. Okay, so did people just go to sort of a diversified cropping system then, or did they start more on like soybeans and corn or what, what did they start to do after that? Well, in my county, uh, you know, a lot of people just got out. They just, uh -huh. like my, my dad was one, he just, oh. we had a town job and uh, my mom worked the town job and we actually wound up renting the farm. A lot of the farmers, that stayed in tobacco, it went to a contract system, which was eerily like the CAFO contract system. And uh, a lot of them just couldn't, they just weren't wired to take orders like that. And um, so they got out of it. And you know, the, and, it, and, and, the, and the bigger got bigger and the little ones got out. I mean, it's the same old story. Okay, it was the get big or get out uh, era. Right. Okay, okay. So then when Tyson came in, was Tyson the first uh, CAFO company that you guys heard from or were there others competing for you or how did that start? Now, Tyson was, was out towards Charlotte, uh, which is a couple hours, two and a half hours west of me, mm -hmm. um, probably starting about, I don't know, Wadesboro, which is about an hour and a half west of me. In our county, who came in was Purdue. They were, uh -huh. they came in, they actually came into Dillon, Dillon County, South Carolina to build the plant, but they were recruiting farmers, you know, in several of the nearby counties and, and Robinson County in North Carolina was one of them. Mm -hmm. And what year did you get into it? I started raising chickens in uh, August of 1992. Um, actually, um, I had talked with them in 91 and um, they kind of drug around and they did, they, everything was behind. So I just kind of gave up on it. The guy called me out of the blue one day and said, hey man, we're still building chicken houses. And the last stupid thing I did on purpose was uh, take that meeting. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, you know. Well, you know, did you have neighbors going into it and you were hearing that folks were making money? What, what that, motive? That was the weird thing, you know, uh, I saw, um, I saw a lot of the farmers that I knew were good farmers getting into it. Um, had a friend I went to college with, his family got into it. I went and looked at the farm and, you know, everything looked okay. I mean, I had a, I have to have a business degree and I have a strong agricultural background. I hate a suit and tie. So this just seemed like the perfect fit. Uh, a row crop operation, a small row crop operation was not doable in the early nineties. We knew nothing about organic that term didn't exist in our part of the world. So that wasn't really an option. And, but the, but the chicken industry sold it as, you know, you're going to not get rich quick, but make a good living. And that's, you know, and that's, that's what I went with. And mm -hmm. I carried it to the accountant and he cash flowed it. And if the numbers they gave me would have been accurate, it, it would have been okay. Uh, again, not get rich quick. And then the guy at farm credit who actually was a family friend said, man, this might be the best thing ever happened to farming in Robson County. I think he's changed tuned since, but he's also retired. And, um, but uh, it, it just, just wasn't so. Mm -hmm. So um, even like, did you have to go to the bank to, to get a loan for that? How did you get it? How did you make it start to work for you to to get the buildings built anyway well they had they they came out like i said and we had a meeting and they brought me a pro forma you know an income expense projection thing never mm -hmm. saw a contract um i didn't think that was odd at the time uh because the bank was satisfied with the pro forma as a quote unquote business plan you, you got the uh, letter of commitment from the bank and then then you could build the houses and Actually, at that time, Purdue was actually the general contractor of the housing. Uh, they don't do that anymore, but they did then. So they had that control of it too. And then once they got through building the houses, you signed off on it, everything's okay, and you got birds. Okay, so so you built it to Purdue's specifications, or they built it to their specifications, but using your land. Yes, my land and, and my money. And your money. So you actually signed off on it. Did you have any doubts about it or did you think, I mean, it sounds like everybody was telling you this was a great thing. No, I had no doubts about it at the time. And if you'd have talked to me two years into it or a year into it anyway, I'd have been on a whistle stop tour singing the praises. I mean, but there is a honeymoon phase to it. And I don't know if it was actually better or I just didn't know enough. And it just took a while to kind of put all the moving pieces together that this is not, this is not, this is a, a, a scrambled up jigsaw puzzle, not one that's tightly put together. Mm -hmm. So how did it, you know, leak into you that, that this is not going to work? Well, I, like I said, the first couple of years was okay. And, um, and I was actually working on, with another agriculture company we were doing uh test plots with pesticides and that that business was kind of fading out so i built two more houses to have a quote unquote full-time income and so i settled that first flock and the money didn't double and then the expenses way more than double so return wise i was worse off than i was with two houses and that was like the big uh-oh moment but there again that that point i'm about four hundred thousand dollars in debt so um, it's, um you know what do you do yeah. I, I, what are you going to do? And you have a system that they've told you would work and you just thought, or may, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if it was me, I would think, well, you just have to hold on a little longer. 
Well, that, that's the interesting thing. The pro forma that they brought out was the whole the whole premise of the thing was you get the loan paid off in 10 years and then you start seeing some significant return. Huh. All that is they never let you get it paid off because uh, with every three to five years, there's always some new thing that you have to have and put on the houses or the whole industry is going to implode and uh, we won't make you do it. But if you don't do it, we won't bring any more birds. And those things started, you know, started off as minor things, but then it got into multiples of tens of thousands of dollars. So it was like a treadmill of debt. It just never got out of it. I actually did get my farm paid off in 04, uh, just like I was supposed to. And it wasn't, it wasn't no time they were out there pushing for, you know, I think the last upgrade I did was about $100,000. So I still pay for the farm and I've been out of six years. Wow. So you had, and you had it paid off in 04 and then they, they asked you for more. Yeah. If I would have known in 04 what I knew in, uh, you know, now uh, I would have left then. It wouldn't, you know, it'd been, it wouldn't have been but 12 years wasted instead of, you know, however many it was. And, and I could have started life over before 40 instead of waiting till 50, but that's all perfect hindsight. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm on the side of it now and it's just, I'm totally fine. And you are listening to Farm and Fiddle on KOPN 89.5 FM in Columbia, Missouri, and KOPN.org on the World Wide Web. And the interview that you're listening to is an interview that I did with Craig Watts, uh, who had a concentrated animal feeding operation, or CAFO, raising chickens in his home of North Carolina. And, uh, you know, as he says, it's he's speaking from 2020 hindsight. He realized after he got into it that the company's numbers didn't completely reflect the reality of getting into that CAFO system. And not only that, but he was in competition with other farmers who had adopted the same scheme, all of them owing massive amounts on their buildings and not taking in enough to really provide them with the kind of uh, income that, that they needed to pay those debts and also take care of their families. So let's go back to our conversation with Craig. Are you still on the farm? Yes. Uh, matter of fact, we're uh, converting the uh, the chicken farm. We're going to actually start raising mushrooms there. Um, and kind of been planning on something alternative because it's really their limited use buildings. I mean, they're built for raising chickens, so not good for much else. But you can tweak them a little bit here and there or do some things and, and have some alternative uses for them. And that's one thing we've come up with. There's, I know a farmer who's doing hemp. Um, I know another lady who converted hers into a greenhouse. That's a, I didn't want to really go in a big expense. And that's a big expense trying to create something, you know, that's not meant to be there. Um, Cause you got to pull the roof off, put the clear panels, all that. Cause I didn't want to do that. I, all I'm gonna do is pull a storage container that's, that right on the back of those semis. I'm gonna pull it right into the chicken house, make a grow room with it and just use the insulation and the shelter from the chicken house, just kind of to help with the, uh, you know, the environment, the cooling, the heating cost. Huh. Have you ever raised uh, mushrooms before? I, I've done it on small scale. We actually have a tobacco barn at my home, right, right out my side door. 
And uh, I, I did race them. On, so I think I'm, I'm ready to scale up now. It's just, it's just a matter of keeping the environment right. So it's not, and it's not a living, breathing animal. So you do have a little bit more wiggle room with a mushroom than you did with the chickens. And, um, you know, and, I, and it's not going, I'm not going to be harming anybody by, or any animal by raising mushrooms. Right. Well, you know, that's, you bring up a good point because one of the things I, I live in a neighborhood that's got a couple of CAFOs in it and a couple of hog confinements in it. And one of them is really huge. It's a sow operation and it's just, it's pretty new. Um, and it does affect our neighborhood. In fact, we've, we've had a lot of our neighbors, you know, move away because they don't want to live near it. Um, did you find that happened with your neighborhood when, when the chickens came in, when you guys started raising them? You, I, you have other neighbors that raised chickens too, right? Yeah, I'm not aware of any big, um, uh, there, you know, naturally there's some people who didn't like it. My, my, my house was like a mile from anywhere else. So it wasn't, it wasn't that big of an issue. And, 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 and you know, I, I don't mean to split hairs, but the hog confinement with 100,000 sows is way worse than a chicken confinement with 100,000 chickens. It just is. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's like you do want to drown or burn, but it, it's, it, it is. And uh, neither one is pleasant, but, you know, I, I've got a hog cafe that's probably three miles from me and it's pretty powerful sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it hasn't changed your neighborhood, you know, the people in your, you've still got neighbors. <laughs> yeah. still Our neighborhood, I mean, we're like the poorest county in the state, or if we're not, we're in the top three. And, um, you know, and, and they set up in places like that intentionally, you know, where people don't have much political clout and mm -hmm. land values are low anyway. And uh, so it's, it, that, that's by design. They mm -hmm. exploit where they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you, when you had your chickens, how many chickens did you have in, in your buildings? How many buildings did you have? I guess we start with that. I had four buildings. Um, they were 40 feet wide by 500 feet long, which is pretty big. It's like a half an acre under a shelter, mm. but they're, that's small today. I think they're building like 60 by 600 or something like that. Mm. Uh, and my, my buildings would hold 30,000. Uh, so I'd have 120,000 any one time. And then we'd do like six turns a year. So that'd be 720,000 a year. And we'd raise the bird up to about four and a half pounds. There's, there's all kinds of programs. There's smaller birds, bigger birds just opinion what company you're with mm -hmm. yeah i had a friend who had chickens and he told me that the corporation brought him the feed so he didn't have control over what we what he was feeding them and uh and then they came and picked up the birds too so he didn't have control over and he didn't he didn't have a way to weigh them either is did you have that situation yeah well, that's that's kind of core to the model is uh the company control uh, owns the feed. The company mm -hmm. owns the birds. I think the birds, the, the uh, variability and the quality of the birds is is a much bigger factor in how much you make than the feed is. That's my opinion. Because mm -hmm. I saw some pretty uh, sorry chickens, you know, over the course of twenty three years. Um, if, and yeah, they can let you run out of feed. I mean, you're just at their mercy totally. Illegally, you can go down to the plant and watch your birds get weighed in. But how are you going to do that when you're back at your farm getting the houses ready for the catch crews to come in? You know, very, very few people do it. I, I know a couple of people that have gone down and done it, but, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't happen much. Mm -hmm. You don't have any checks and balances anyway once they leave the scales. 
and it starts ciphering your pay. We call it the magic pencil. You don't know what, 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 you know, what you're, you're totally dependent on their math, you know, and that's, that's a dangerous thing. Oh, so you don't know what price you're selling them at. You don't know what your per pound price will be or anything like that. Well, that's the interesting thing that I don't know if y'all have ever heard of the tournament system. It's kind of a, a, a method of compensation and basically it's a, I call it Thunderdome, 10 <laughs> men enter, five men leave. And, that, and that's what it is. It's like if 10 farmers go out in that week, they, they compete with one another um, with inputs they have no control over. So five farmers are going to make above average pay. Five armor, farmers are going to make below average pay. The company only pays ba base pay. You know, it, it's, it's a Chris Leonard called it the zero sum game. If you add them all up and divide it by 10, if it's a nickel a pound that the base pay is in the contract, that's what the company will pay out. The pie is finite. The farmers are fighting for the bigger piece. And uh, so that that's kind of a, it, it, I don't know if anywhere else that kind of system is. They say it's the best thing going, but if it was so good, they would pay all their help that way. The whole world would be set up that way and uh, and everything would be great. But it's, uh, it, it's a cost control method. It's got nothing to do with rewarding a farmer. So I don't, I guess I don't understand it. If, okay. Let's say, I don't even really know how much chickens go for. Let's say they go for a dollar a pound. Let's just say, what, you're laughing. What? We got a nickel a pound. A nickel, <laughs> a, nickel a pound. <laughs> so it means that five guys got six cents a pound and five guys got four cents a pound? Well, let's just say there was three farmers in it. Okay. One guy would get five and a half cent. The other guy would get four and a half cent. That brings it back to five cent a pound. Me and the guy in the middle would get five cent. So the company has paid out 15 cents. One farmer got five and a half, one got four and a half, one got five. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, but how it makes sense in a way, but I mean, how does the guy that gets four and a half cents, how does he how does he stay in business? Uh, <laughs> Well, uh, a lot of times they go out, have to go out and get jobs. So I call it supporting your chicken habit. Um, the, my spouse worked, which was, you know, she was a school teacher. It wasn't a great salary, but it, it certainly helped. You're seeing a lot of folks just potentially in there. I mean, they're just steady and they're rolling the notes and refinancing and trying to get room to breathe, living out of depreciation, which is not smart. I mean, you just, you're just grinding out days and paying off debt. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. Wow. So we hear a lot about government subsidies. Did that help you out or uh, were there any? No, that didn't help me out any. Um, there, I mean, there, there are programs like with uh, NRCS where they will foot the bill for like a litter shed or, but like if, you know, if I, if I go, if I make a bad flock of chickens or I don't make much money growing chickens, whether, whatever it costs me to produce it, I don't even cover that. There's no, there's no subsidy there. The subsidies kick in, uh, like with the grain farmers, they are buying, um, they're getting, they're producing grain, but they're not getting enough money to cover the cost of production. So the government kind of comes in and they subsidize that to get them kind of at least back, you know, tread water. It's not, I'm sure they don't get rich off of it. I'm not sure. But the companies can then go in and buy that same grain at below the cost of production. Mm -hmm. So they're getting the benefit of, of the cumulative benefit of all these subsidies where the farmers getting, you know, like a little check, a little check, a little check. The, the companies are, are raking in billions. I mean, it's uh, that that's when you hear the system subsidized, that's that's one way. But as far as the farmer uh, getting any help 
uh, when he does poorly, I mean, unless maybe a natural disaster or something, but the, the run of the meal tournament system, you know, you just bite the bullet. Hmm. Is the tournament system still going? Because I heard something about the tournament system system ending. Uh, there that that's been kicked around for some time. I think everybody realizes what a ridiculous um, assumption it is. Uh, that the last thing I saw, they said that the tournament system was put in place to ensure welfare of the birds. I don't know exactly how you make that connection, <laughs> but it's on the website if you want to check it out at the National Chicken Council. Okay. It also says that farmers start with the equal quality chicks and feed, which is like one of the biggest lies ever been told. Um, so yes, it's still around. Um, there's some stirring in DC now where they're trying to, the USDA is trying to address some things that have been wrong with this system for a long time. Back in 2008, the Farm Bill, Congress actually told the USDA to fix this stuff. Well, when they got in there and tried to fix it, they found out how quickly these powerful these companies were, and um, none of it, it basically got through. And so they're basically revisiting the whole thing again. And the first thing in, in the order of things is the tournament system. You know, how can we get a better system of pay that, you know, you know actually is a, that actually is a gauge of the farmer's management, not based on what inputs you receive. Mm hmm. Hmm. Okay. I don't know any farmer who goes out and does intentionally, you know, sets out thing. I'm not gonna look after this flock, this flock. But, you know, if you look at that tournament system, it looked like somebody was very neglectful, which they, most of the time, if you got unhealthy birds and you settled pretty bad, you work three times as hard. If you got good feed, good chicks, they raise the sales, you know, just, just cruise. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Uh, well, okay. What's going on with the industry in your area? Is it are a lot of people in the same boat you are and getting out or is it still building or what what's going on um well where i'm at i think it's just it's there's some growth but it's not like explosive but if you look in areas like costco got into the integrated poultry business and they actually owned their own company out in uh, fremont nebraska now lincoln premium poultry so that that area that had nothing is all of a sudden exploded i'm getting reports from oregon that Foster Farms is building a lot. I worked up on the De Delaware, uh, the Delmarva, the Delaware, Maryland, Virginia Peninsula. And that place was like the Wild West. I mean, they were just, it was just ungodly how many uh, farms they were putting up. And I tried to get out ahead of it and talk to farmers and you know, let them know about the pitfalls of the contracts. Uh, we slowed it down in Nebraska. We didn't stop it because, you know, if they, if they got a thousand farmers in the area, they don't need about 80 to, to run a complex and they'll get that many. Um, but um, like I said, just depending on where you are, some, there's, there's spots where it's ex expanding, but a lot of times they're cutting these older farmers off to make room for the new farmers. And they say, well, the house is more efficient. Well, I don't agree with that because my houses were 20 some years old and I was still competing with new houses and doing, doing fine. And um, so the thing is, these, these, these guys are about control. If they got you in debt with a new house, they could control you a lot better than if you have old houses and don't have any debt. Because you can say, no, I ain't doing that and see you. But you can't do that with a mean and half dollar debt. Well, yeah, and you're completely at their mercy. They've got to pick those chickens up. You can't, uh, there's no other place, right? Or are there other markets? Yeah, and that should have been a red flag. You know, I was 25 years old and the guy was telling me, man, with your background and your education, you're going to be so good, blah, blah, blah. And I was just eating it up. You know, my head was about this big. 
And I didn't stop to think, you know, the same man that's bringing me these chickens is the same man that's buying them from me. That should have been a red flag. But there again, hindsight's perfect. But uh, anybody thinking about getting into it, just listen to this, heed the warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so tell us about what you're doing now, because you are talking to other farmers, aren't you? And, and trying to make them aware of what's going on? Yeah, I started, um, I don't know, um, doing some press right, right, right around that 2008 farm bill. I started working with an organization called the Rural Advancement Foundation International. They call it RAFI, so you don't have to say that mouthful. And they kind of held my hand and showed me, you know, how to guide me and how to deal with media. And, 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 uh, and I, I wasn't scared to speak out. So they would, that, that was unusual. And so they would, they was, you know, I, I talked to a lot of reporters over the years. And um, so I was still under contract and I don't know exactly what it was. There was just a lot of little things that had added up. That $100,000 upgrade was one of them telling me I couldn't get any more birds if I didn't do it. That didn't sit well as it wouldn't with anybody. But anyway, I had got to my point, that breaking point, and um, I saw a commercial, and it was Purdue, and it was the chairman was driving down the road talking about his daddy told him to treat people right and all this stuff, and they're walking into his chicken house, and it's pristine. It's got, like, fresh pine shavings. The birds had a half an acre of peaches roaming around in. Just everything shiny and new, and I was like, wow, this is not what I see. And I, I had to sit on that a couple of years, and I got hooked up with a guy uh, from Reuters, and we did a story on the antibiotics in chicken feed, and he introduced me to a lady. He called her the chicken expert. She was actually with a, a, a animal welfare organization, and so she, I invited her down to come take a look, and she filmed, and we did a little five-minute YouTube, and it got New York Times picked it up. It got up on the Reddit board, and it just kind of turned my world kind of upside down, and so I, I, I raised chickens another year, which was one year longer than I probably should have, and I didn't have a plan B, but I just woke up one morning and I said, I'm done. You know, and I, so I sent my email and told him, you know, I was done. Uh, I think champagne corks popped. I'm not sure, but that's okay. Even as mutual. And um, so the, uh, there was a lady that worked with the socially responsible agriculture project who I knew from years back, uh, just through Facebook. And uh, she and I were, became friends over the years. And she said, they're looking at maybe putting some people on. And I knew about SRAP and, uh, and so I came on like I think hourly and then as a consultant and I did that for about four or five years and then Sherry came in and um, moved me to staff and so we have created a program called the Grow Transition Program now and it's to we just want to be the go-to for information for farmers looking in or looking to get out of this business there's not a, a whole heck of a lot of good options but uh, we're we're pursuing everything we can to, to make sure that you know that, that people don't wind up just being indentured service their whole life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how do people get a hold of you if there's someone who's, you know, it's going south on them that maybe they just want more information? How do they get a hold of you guys? It would just go to our website, which is uh, all you got to do is Google socially responsible agricultural project. And if you open it up and you open up to staff, you'll see myself, Michael Diaz and Susie Crutchfield were all former contract poultry producers. We've lived a gimmick and uh, our emails there and they can shoot us an email and we'll, you know, set up a call and, 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 and do what we can. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like this pattern that you, you know, you're talking about, it seems like it's going through the poultry industry. 
do you see people getting out of hogs? Uh, you know, North Carolina does. We do our our hog system is mostly contract, and they're, you know, the independents are getting fewer and fewer. I think they're basically in the same boat as um, you know that they're married to that mortgage. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I know. I know of one one commercial hog farmer that uh, is looking also to convert his facility into mushrooms. Hmm. I know one hog farmer that already has, and um, but that I think. Uh, I don't know. They, 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 you don't, there's, you know, it's unusual to hear a chicken farmer speak out against the industry, mm -hmm. but it's way more unusual to hear a hog farmer speak out against industry. Though, if you take one behind the barn, their conversation sounds a whole lot like our conversation, but mm -hmm. in front of the barn, what do you say? You know, you got to be careful. Yeah, that's right. Are you worried about repercussions? Yeah. No, I, I, I <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I expected when I released that video to get fired. So I'd already braced myself for that. That's the worst they could do. Mm -hmm. I lost a contract. So what? What have I lost? That's the way my wife told me. And that made sense to me. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, we will be no worse off. I try to make it work, you know, and, um, but uh, it, didn't yeah. it just didn't work out for me. Well, um, have anything, do you have anything to add or do you, uh, are there other things you think that people need to know? Well, I think it's interesting right now is uh, there's this threat of bird flu uh, that's, that's, that's came back up. Um, and that, that's another thing. I mean, you got all these millions of dollars invested in, in like a, a duck or a goose or something come over and poop and you step in it. And if it, if it has that, if it's hot with AI, you track it in your houses and it's game over. And uh, so... It, I, there was a there was a hog farmer. He's passed now, but he actually wound up being a very good advocate. And he was like, you know, when you do this and you cram something in situations like this, it's so against Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. To expect nothing to happen, you got to be a big idiot. And that's the best line I'd ever heard. Uh, and I said, yeah, that's right. And so it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. And if it blows through North Carolina, Virginia, Delaware, and Georgia. It's going to be massive, massive mortality, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're. I don't know if they'll recover from it or not. Well, you know, and you hear about the trucks picking it up, and then it goes from farm to farm on truckers or some, you know, workers' boots or something. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways it can get around. Sure. Um, you know, they'll 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 say that they biosecurity, but I, what we found out biosecurity was was. Uh, Farmers started having meetings and they didn't like that. So they used biosecurity as a way to kind of divide and conquer, kind of keep the farmers from talking to each other. You know, don't go to so-and-so's farm because you might track disease. Well, they send people all over to, you know, they, they, their service representatives go to, you know, 10 or 12 farms a day. Their feed trucks go to 10 or 12 farms a day. Mm -hmm. They're immune to it somehow. They're not going to spread it. So I, 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 I'm not, you know, the biosecurity has never really impressed me. Well, I thank you so much for, for speaking out, for being one that speaks out. It's like you said, there's not too many people doing that. And how are we going to learn if we don't hear it from the folks that have had the experience? So, Yeah, one thing that's really happened in the last um, couple of years, maybe three years, is one thing is that there, there are a few more farmers coming out, mm -hmm. speaking out. And that's that's wonderful. And uh, But the industry has gotten... What's done it to itself? It's it's got these. Uh, there's three lawsuits 
There's one where they conspired to fix the prices to the consumer or their customers, one where they conspired to fix the pay of the farmers, and one where they conspired to fix the pay of the workers. They would just have these meetings in, you know, you know, the Boca Raton and at the Hilton or whatever, and they would sit in the room and they'd figure out, you know, how can we squeeze another dime out of these folks? And set the two of the companies, Purdue and Tyson, actually settled in the farmer suit. Um, I'm not sure exactly where the other two stand, but it's um, but they are they're very cartelish. Um, you know, they're not gonna they don't it, they call it the no poach agreement. Like if there are a, if there happen to be two integrators in the area. They're not going to compete over one another's farmers because it, it would make their life a nightmare if they had to, you know, adjust housing every day. So they just kind of have been caught doing it. And um, but, uh, you know, the settlement was like thirty five million. I mean, that they, they'll get back that tomorrow. I mean, it's not yeah. the fines. It's not a deterrent anymore, but it's got to be something that really, really hurts their pocketbook. Yeah. Do you think the consumer backlash, you know, I don't know how you guys are where you are, but around us, people are starting to really pay attention to where their food comes from and um, buying local, you know, trying to seek out. We have a chicken farmer that doesn't live too far from us that raises their chickens outside. And I always get my chicken from him. Do you think those consumer efforts are making a difference or scaring the corporations or anything like that? Well, I think it's definitely moved the needle. It, it might not have changed their behavior much. I mean, but it certainly put their PR people in overdrive. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, now it's a family farm and the white picket fence. And, and, and it, but it's, it's the same system. Um, you know, socially responsible agriculture project, we, prom you know, we absolutely promote the kind of farms you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, regenerative and the local and stuff and i think the consumer absolutely is waking up i have a lot of faith in human nature and that it's going to take there's a lot of moving parts here i mean the consumer is definitely one of them but price point is such a difference between commercial and what's good so there's got to be some policy changes you know and and, and um there just has to be and then the consumer preference and then it would be nice if the farmers said no we're not going to do this anymore because the farmers could fix it in five minutes if they would just shut it down and uh what, what are these companies going to do mm -hmm. yeah but then they're without a living or without a without hope i guess yeah, it's, it's a roll of the dice but mm -hmm. I, I i fully believe in it wouldn't take half hour before they'd come back with a better deal interesting that's really interesting to hear. Well, in a way, it kind of reminds you of the consumer rejecting tobacco, you know, just right it just within a few off. years. Yeah, I mean, you know, it took us a half a decade, uh, half a decade, half a century to get here. So it's not something that's going to be worked out overnight. Um, you know, I, and I may be dead and gone before it happens, but I believe it's going to happen. And hopefully my kids will be, you know, being a factory of it. I hope so. I told them, you know, we screwed it up. I'm going to try to help you fix it, but you, you, you're going to have to fix it eventually. So uh yeah that that's uh I, it, the consumers i mean you know the antibiotic free i mean that was driven by the consumer mm -hmm. um and uh the, the the cage free which is ridiculous because there's no broiler chicken in america raised in a cage but they put it on the label like it's something that's what i'm talking about just the <laughs> foolishness that the consumer has pushed them to do without really changing anything i mean it sounds great cage free all natural no hormones what they don't hormones are illegal in chickens anyway since the 70s it's, it's just like much to do about nothing it's like the sky's blue i mean that's basically what they're saying oh really okay <laughs> yeah 
Well, we all do our best. Yeah. I, I you know, I got friends that are vegans, vegetarians, <laughs> all, all points in between, but we know who the enemy is. We all know who the enemy is. Yeah. So if we pull that, we can all get on that wagon and pull it together. We'll, we'll move things a lot faster than demonizing one or the other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, then, you know, when we get it to the point where corporations aren't controlling everything, then we'll get, we can argue about our differences then. But until now, let's, let's pull it together. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you so much. And And this has been a podcast of a presentation on Farm and Fiddle that was broadcast on February 16th, 2022, an interview with Craig Watts, a former poultry farmer from North Carolina, broadcast on KOPN 89.5 FM and KOPN.org on the World Wide Web. If you are interested in more podcasts about concentrated animal feeding operations, we have quite a few that are up on our podcast page. Uh, E31 is an interview with Sherry Duggar, who is Executive Director of Socially Responsible Agriculture Project. And there are a couple more. Dr. Elliot Murphy on the health effects mostly on neighbors of concentrated animal feeding operations. And E19, an interview with Dr. Robert Lawrence on CAFO health risks. And many more I could direct you to, but you'll probably be able to find them on your own. Thanks for listening.